Well, we do have some folks left. Good morning. I'm Norma Farthing, and I am honored to be up here before you today. Thank you for coming. And thank you for being here. I really appreciate the um, support and encouragement that I've received from the other members of the teaching team. You guys have been phenomenal, and I do appreciate it. About a month ago, Bob Dylan was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. The first American to get it since 1992, and the first musician ever. With the award comes enormous recognition, a free trip to Sweden, and a million bucks. Every other award Dylan has won pales in comparison to this one. I was ecstatic. As soon as I read it, I posted the news on Facebook with the comment, well, this just makes my day. I'm in it, too. Like some of you, I have been a huge Dylan fan for half a century. One of the things that attracted me to John was his knowledge of all things Dylan. And if there was ever a question that Rebecca would love John, it was answered the day he walked into our house carrying this book. It contains the lyrics of every song Dylan wrote between 1962 and 1985. We call it the Dylan Bible. And we approach it with the same reverence and awe. The Dylan Bible. For over a month, however, no one heard a peep out of Dylan about this great honor. Not the prize committee, not the media, not the fans, not anybody. He simply ignored it. And when he did finally acknowledge it, he was his usual enigmatic self. After his public declaration, we didn't know any more than we did before it. How can he do that? Well, he doesn't have to explain himself. He is, after all, Bob Dylan. So, you're wondering what all this has to do with Isaiah. Just this. People can ignore other people. It may be rude and selfish and arrogant, but it can be done. On the other hand, people cannot ignore God. When God speaks, we must answer. We can try saying no, of course. But as we learned last week from Jonah, that probably should not be plan A. Or we can say yes, which sometimes really complicates our life. But we cannot be indifferent. The reason is that God is, after all, God. And God is about to speak to us. 
right now. So let's prepare for that in our hearts with a word of prayer. Holy God, we bow before you lost in wonder, love, and praise. We confess our sins, and we pray for cleansing and forgiveness so that our ears can be open and we can hear your call this day. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Wow. Don't you just love that? In this one brief narrative are all the elements of great drama, unique personalities, sensory, uh, powerful images, compelling dialogue, and almost sensory overload. Isaiah sees the Lord. He hears the seraphim and even God himself. He feels and tastes the live coal on his lips. He smells the smoke. Kinesthetically, he experiences the trembling of the foundation and the doorpost. But beyond the drama is a national crisis. After a fairly successful reign of 50 years, Judah's king is dying. Worse, the country is threatened by an invasion from Assyria, the most powerful and dreaded country on the earth. Judah's kinfolks up north in Israel are already being carried away, and Judah surely will be next. God's indictment against his people is long and detailed. Yet, they naively believe they will be spared because they're special. Does that sound familiar? They are God's chosen people. And they own the temple and all its treasures. At the same time, however, they oppress the poor and ignore the disenfranchised sufferers all around them. 
They scheme iniquity and lie awake nights plotting ways to abuse their neighbors. And their preachers actually condone this behavior. It is in this context that Isaiah encounters God. Even as King Uzziah lies dying, Isaiah sees the Lord himself, eternally alive, sitting on a throne, a throne so high up that just the hem of God's robe fills up the temple beneath him. Remember, this is Solomon's temple. It is colossal, both in size and in grandeur. Isaiah looks and feels dwarfed by God, whose presence is so vast that it consumes both heaven and earth at the same time. Big God, little human. The spatial images alone are staggering. If you've ever been in a big cathedral, you know the feeling, don't you? You just feel awfully little in places like that. While Isaiah's feet are firmly planted on earth, his eyes are drawn into heaven itself. We know that because he sees God surrounded by seraphs who are never found on earth. They exist only in heaven, and their sole purpose is to worship God. John the Revelator saw them too, and he wrote, They rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. The basic sense of the word holy is set apart. You know that. In this context, the Lord's holiness is first and foremost his transcendent sovereignty as the ruler of the world. He is set apart from the world over which he rules. Again, note the emphasis of uh, his throne, his elevated throne in verse 1, and his designation as the king in verse 5. At the same time, his holiness encompasses his moral authority, which derives from his royal position. As king, he has the right to dictate to his subjects how they are to live. Indeed, his very own character sets the standard for proper behavior. He is set apart from his subjects in a moral sense as well. He sets the standards. They fall short of it. Note that in verse 5 again, Isaiah laments that he is morally unworthy even to be in the king's presence. It is that holiness that prompts the seraphs to cover their eyes and their feet. These seraphs exist in the presence of God, but God is so holy that they dare not even look at him. So they cover their faces. And feet in that culture were symbols of impurity. Do you remember when Jesus washed his disciples' feet? Sign of impurity. 
So these seraphs cover their feet as well. It is God's holiness that drives home to Isaiah the truth of his own unholiness. Isaiah doesn't just feel unclean. He is unclean. He is little, puny, inadequate, unworthy, unclean. When we truly experience the majesty and grandeur and holiness of God, we recognize the vast chasm chasm that exists between him and us. We are not equals. Additionally, we recognize other people around us. And we find out that we're just like them. Too often we compare ourselves to other people. And of course, when we do that, we come off looking pretty good, right? But when we compare ourselves to God, none of us looks very good. We are all unclean. We are all doomed. Isaiah feels doomed because he knows he can't do anything about that. He has seen this holy God, and he expects to die. Unless God does something, Isaiah is in big trouble. So God takes the initiative, sending a seraph to lift a live coal from one of the temple altars and touch Isaiah's lips. With that, fear and separation and death are finished. Isaiah is forgiven. It's done. It's over. The cleansing is crucial. Then I heard, Isaiah says. After the cleansing, Isaiah is able to hear the voice of God. Until now, he hasn't heard it. Isaiah has seen God. He's heard the seraphs, and we know that God spoke in order to send the seraph down to cleanse his lips, but Isaiah's ears have been closed off. He can't hear. Now he hears God ask, Who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And he feels free to interrupt a heavenly conversation to say, Here am I. Send me. So what does all this mean for us? One, you never know where you will encounter God. Moses met him in a a burning bush, Paul on a country road, Mary Magdalene outside an open tomb. Isaiah happened to be in church. And y'all, he seemed as surprised as anybody when God showed up there. (laughs) Seriously. Did you come to church this morning expecting to encounter God? Are we just doing what we do every Sunday morning at 1015? Are we going through the motions? Y'all... 
God is here. We must remember that. Everything I'm saying is built on my own conviction that God is here, right here, right now. Do you believe that? Two, God is here and God is calling. God's question is not solely for Isaiah. Rather, it is a general question. God keeps repeating over and over, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? The Bible teaches that all Christians are called by God to serve in his kingdom. All Christians. The Great Commission was given to all Christians. The ministry and message of reconciliation given to all Christians. The question then is not who is called or have you been called. The question is, will you answer the call you've already received? Like Judah, we are in dire straits. Our world is often dark and frightening, and it, it really is right now. We literally do not know what this world is coming to. We are more polarized and angry and exhausted than we've ever been in our history. We are profoundly intimidated by anybody who doesn't think or act or look or talk or eat or vote just like we do. It scares us to death. Into, it is into this colossal divide that God sends us all of us, to be reconcilers. Just as we are reconciled to God in Christ, we are responsible for reconciling others to God and to one another. God has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. Entrusted, y'all, to us, this precious ministry. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, we are Christ's ambassadors. What does that mean? Simply that we are Christ's representatives in this broken world. We are his body, his face, his eyes, his ears, his feet, his hands. If people are going to encounter God, it will be in us. That's where reconciliation begins. And that means we have to be where they are. This sanctuary, with its friendly faces and comfortable seats and sounds, a great sound system, is not the church. We are the church. I am the church. You are the church. We are the church together. This building is just a place where we practice and regroup and get ready to go out there and be the church. 
I live among people with unclean lips, Isaiah realized. Those folks, as sinful and unclean as Isaiah knew himself to be, were his neighbors and his family and his friends. To fulfill his calling, he had to live among them, to engage in their lives. Don't you imagine that was hard for him? Especially with these newly minted lips? He didn't want to go out there and be part of that pollution. He wanted to stay right there in the sanctuary with God. You know, me and Jesus got our own thing going. Sometimes we feel like that, don't we? But to be reconcilers, we have to get outside. We have to get outside our comfort zone. In 1979, when the Iranians were holding our embassy and our people hostage in Tehran, Rebecca and I knew an Iranian family living in Little Rock. They had a daughter about Rebecca's age, and their apartment had a complex, their apartment complex had a pool. So we'd go hang out with them, and while the girls swam, we'd share our stories and our lives on a really human level, including the pain that they felt uh, over what was going on in their country. Then they'd share their hospitality with interesting food and drink, all served Iranian style. And if you've ever done that, you know it is way cool. It was a great time, wonderful experience. In time, we learned that they were also Muslims. The M word. But by then, it didn't matter. They were our friends, and we loved them. That's how reconciling works. One act, one person, one family at a time. One cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus. Sure, if we look at the big picture, terrorism, racism, persecution, poverty, hunger, homelessness, cruelty, and inhumanity, we will feel overwhelmed. But the good news is we don't have to take on the whole world. If we embrace just one person or one need, or one cause, it becomes manageable. The presence of even one suffering child can be the voice of God asking, who will go to the least of these? We just saw a great little video, didn't we? Explaining that to us. Who will go to the least of these? And remember what King Jesus will say in the judgment. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Not to respond is to respond. With silence and inactivity, we actually say no to God. And like everything else, we can gloss that over with piety until we really believe it is an act of faith. How many times have you thought or said, God's on his throne. I'm going to let him handle this. 
It's true that God is on his throne. If we learn anything from Isaiah, we learn that God transcends every earthly power. When we are afraid, we ought to trust God. But God is also calling, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? Surprise. God handles it through his called out ones. It is not the time to wash our collective and individual hands of the mess around us. People need the Lord. They need us. There is kingdom work to be done, and we need to get busy doing it. Three. In addition to these calls on all believers, God identifies specific individuals at specific times for specific assignments. As you contemplate your own calling and God's calling on others, consider these two principles. A. God does not discriminate. God is no respecter of persons. He can and does use anybody. All he needs is our devotion and our obedience. God doesn't qualify people by gender, race, marital status, age, class, ability, education, economic status, or any other criterion. At the same time God called Isaiah, the the aristocrat, he called Micah, the farmer. Moses was a shepherd. Amos, a fruit picker. Samuel was a child. Mary, the mother of Jesus, barely a teenager. God called fishermen and tax collectors and political zealots and women whose only credential was their love for Jesus. Think what you were when you were called, Paul reminded the Corinthians. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. We don't operate by the world's standards. That will make us look pretty weird to them. And probably to each other. We get a little scared about Jesus freaks, right? Seriously. It may even make us look weird to each other. We must not care. Our first and most important allegiance is to the God who called us and to no one else. B. God's calling is sovereign. Remember, he doesn't have to explain why he calls whom he calls because he's God. John 3, 8. The Holy Spirit moves wherever he wants to. A good example of this is found in John 21. As they walked along the seashore after the resurrection, Jesus called Peter three, asked Peter three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? 
When Peter answered each time that he did, Jesus said, three times, feed my sheep. Looking for a loophole, perhaps, Peter pointed to John and asked, Lord, what about him? To which Jesus replied succinctly, you know, that's really none of your business. He wasn't going to let Peter weasel out of his own calling by bringing somebody else into it. His call was on Peter. It wasn't on John. You see, this calling business is a personal transaction between God and one of his children. When, not if, when, God calls you, you must respond, regardless what others might think or say to you. Likewise, when God calls somebody else, that's between that person and God. Please don't argue that people are mistaken about God's calling on their own lives. Another person Jesus called after the resurrection was Mary Magdalene. She was the first person to see Jesus alive. Go and tell my brothers what you've seen, he told her outside the open tomb. It was not a suggestion. It was a command. And she obeyed. She went immediately to the frightened men huddled in the upper room. Of course they didn't believe her. They had to go see for themselves, right? But being rejected did not deter her. Jesus said, go, and she went, making her the first person ever to share the gospel. Saying yes to God is never assurance of acceptance by people. Yet those who take their call seriously obey regardless of the personal cost. Read the remainder of Isaiah 6. His ministry was going to be hard. They wouldn't even listen, much less respond. <laughs> Yet God said go, so Isaiah went. Thanks to James Covington. I don't know whether he's here. Okay. James Covington is a member of the teaching team. I, through him, I learned something about uh, the call narratives in the Bible. One element is always the individual's objection to being called. Moses pointed out that he had some kind of a speech impediment. Gideon argued that he came from the smallest of the 12 tribes. Jeremiah pled inexperience. Uh, God, I'm just a kid here. Yet Isaiah, with Isaiah, it was his own sin. Yet his objection was not based on ability or gifting. Having witnessed God's holiness and majesty and grandeur, he felt inadequate for the task. How could he ever speak for this glorious God with these unclean lips? As we've seen, though, God took care of that problem, and Isaiah remained faithful to his calling until the very end. As I reflected on 
calling objections, I remembered Esther. Yes, God calls women too. Esther was a Jewish captive in Persia during the reign of Xerxes. After Xerxes banished his first wife, Esther won a contest to replace her. But no one knew Esther was a Jew. One day, Esther's uncle Mordecai sent her news that Haman, one of the king's powerful subordinates, was plotting to annihilate all the Jewish captives. captives. Mordecai wanted Esther to go to Xerxes and appeal for the lives of her people. Her objection? The king had not called her. Try to get your mind around that. The king hadn't called me. If I go in there unannounced, he will kill me. No, not going to do it. Of course, Xerxes had not called her. She was called by a greater and more powerful king. The same one that called Isaiah. Reminded that she had come to the kingdom for just such a critical time, Esther agreed to fast and pray and then go to Xerxes. If I perish, I perish, she declared. And that was not a sigh of resignation or fear. Esther knew full well what the possibilities were, and she faced them with courage and faith and determination. She didn't perish either. Xerxes held out his scepter and welcomed her, and she saved her own life and the life of her people. Surely we have come to the kingdom for such a time as ours. You've heard that God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. It's true. If you feel inadequate or unworthy or unclean, God doesn't care. He can fix whatever is broken in you to prepare you for your calling. And this table is a good place to start. Just as the hot coal from the altar touched Isaiah's lips and cleansed him, the body and blood of our Lord can touch our lips and our tongue and purify us and open our ears to hear God's calling. The critical thing is to respond. Not to respond is, after all, a response. You must decide. If not now, when? If not here, where? But there are only two options. You can say, as Bob Dylan might put it, it ain't me, Lord. It ain't me you're looking for, Lord. Or you can say with Isaiah, here am I, Lord. I'm the one you're looking for, Lord. Send 
me. It's your call.